For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. Our main reason for reading this passage is not only its reference to baptism, but most importantly, that baptism and circumcision, the Old Testament sign and seal, are used in the same connection. That is, they're used interchangeably. This passage makes clear the truth that we read in the form that baptism has come in the place of circumcision, just like the Lord's Supper has come in the place of the Passover. Colossians 2, For I would that ye knew what great conflict I have for you and for them at Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts might be comforted, being knit together in love, and unto all riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the acknowledgement of the mystery of God and of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. For though I be absent in the flesh, yet am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order, and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ, as ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. Beware, lest any man spoil you, through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands, having nourishment, ministered and knit together, increaseth with the increase of God. Wherefore, 
If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances, touch not, taste not, handle not, which all are to perish with the using, after the commandments and doctrines of men, which things have indeed a show of wisdom and will-worship, and humility, and neglecting of the body, not in any honor to the satisfying of the flesh. We read that far in God's holy word. And we consider this morning, Lord's Day 27, question and answer 74. Lord's Day 27, question and answer 74. Are infants also to be baptized? Yes, for since they as well as the adult are included in the covenant and church of God, and since redemption from sin by the blood of Christ and the Holy Ghost, the author of faith, is promised to them no less than to the adult, they must therefore by baptism, as a sign of the covenant, be also admitted into the Christian church, and be distinguished from the children of unbelievers, as was done in the Old Covenant or Testament by circumcision, instead of which baptism is instituted in the New Covenant. In the wondrous and wise providence of God, He has arranged that on the occasion of the administration of the sacrament of baptism to an infant, we are to this question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, which concerns this question. Are infants, our children, the proper objects of baptism? May, should, baptism be administered to them? This question and answer is in the Heidelberg Catechism because it was among the sacramental doctrinal issues that arose at the time of the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, we are aware that there were doctrinal controversies and struggles and reformation with regard to the Lord's Supper. And there were controversies that arose even within Protestantism between the Calvinists and Lutherans. But there was also controversy over the issue addressed in this Lord's Day, namely, may infants or children be baptized. Prior to then, this was not an issue. It was not a controversy, important all by itself, that for 1,500 years the New Testament church had baptized infants. That was the rule, that was the practice, and that was considered biblical. Only during the time of the Reformation did sects and groups arise that made that a controversy. So the Reformation considered the issue and came down decidedly in favor of what had been the practice up until that point, basically saying 
that that practice was not, as we read in Colossians 2, according to the rudiments of the world or the traditions of men, but was a tradition of God. God required it. This should not have been a controversy. Obviously, the devil, as he usually is, is behind a controversy. Of course, under God's providence, who uses controversies to sharpen the thinking of the church, to sharpen its doctrine. And surely, out of this came the great good of development of the covenant. It is exactly out of the controversy over the baptism of infants and children that the Church of the Reformation grows greatly by leaps and bounds in its understanding of the covenant of grace. And we are the beneficiaries of that controversy stirred up by the devil himself. But as I said, it really should not even have been a controversy if one considers what we just considered last week, which is that baptism is the sacrament of washing. It's a sign and seal of washing. And therefore, the question should be rephrased. The question really is this. Is it proper to wash your infants? Is it proper to take water and scrub the dirt off your little children? Now, if you would ask that question, every mother in the audience would say, of course, you would be crazy not to wash your children. In fact, you could even make the case that children should be washed more frequently and more often. We adults, we can survive living with some dirt and germs on us, but children are fragile. The point being is that that wouldn't even be a question. No mother would question that. No one would make that a controversy. And yet, that's what happened with the sacrament of washing. And we're going to consider that this morning. The sacrament of washing. The washing of our children. The washing of our children. We notice in the first place the command, then the basis, and the calling. Those who refuse to baptize their infants or their children often place upon those that do the warrant, the requirement to prove from Scripture that there is commandment to do this. That is a large part of their argument. They claim that there is no biblical warrant. There is no biblical commandment. You won't find this required in Scripture. And so far, it was 1,500 years a tradition of men. It was something that should not have been instituted. Those that did it, whether they be apostles or followers of the apostles or subsequent ministers and churches, were all wrong. We had it right. I would point out that there is a parallel here with regard to the truth of divorce and remarriage. Often the Protestant Reformed churches are accused with our doctrine of divorce and remarriage, namely that there is only one biblical ground for divorce and there is no biblical ground for remarriage other than death of one of the spouses. 
that that's novel, that's new, that was dreamed up by us. Not true. Just like baptism of infants, it was the practice of the church for 1,500 years. 1,500 years. We believe, and we counter the argument with the firm conviction that the Scriptures indeed command baptism. We don't concede the point at all. At the same time, if you examine the response of the Reformed churches since that became a controversy in the 1500s, you will discover that the Reformed argument is that it doesn't need to be commanded. It is obvious and it is plain. The response of the Reformed basically is, why would you even doubt that? Why would you even question that? Look at the Scriptures, the whole Scriptures now. And they would begin with the Old Testament. And they would do that in part because many of those who objected to the doctrine of infant baptism did so on the basis of a division they created between the Old and New Testaments. They weren't simply an old and new form of one testament or covenant, but they were entirely different, separate, different groups, different peoples, different everything. And behind that was a basis for the argument that therefore whatever happened in the Old Testament really doesn't apply to the question of baptizing infants in the New. The argument is you can't go to the Old Testament to prove what we're to do in the New. Now there's nothing to that argument. And not only that, but the Reformed would counter immediately with, well then what about Colossians 2? And not only that, but let's consider the Lord's Supper. Do you agree or disagree that the Lord's Supper has come in the place of the Passover, that they're the same as to what they signify and seal. They're exactly the same. There's no difference in meaning. But yet, the one replaced the other, and the Reformed also emphasized replaced the other for one reason especially, which is the Passover was a bloody sacrifice. And since Christ shed His blood, there will be no more shedding of blood even in the sacraments of the church, which explains also then why circumcision, which is a bloody rite, a bloody practice, is replaced with baptism, the application of water representing blood. But the Reformed would say that's not right. You, you already show you have a fundamental problem and mistake with regard to Scripture and God's ways. The church is one. There is one church from beginning of time to the end of time. One people saved by one Messiah through one power and working of God. And therefore, what God did and His attitudes in the Old Testament are very much in play and very much to the point at hand. And you understand the fathers from a certain viewpoint then are answering the question just like you would answer the question if someone asked you, why in the world, mother, 
Do you have your baby there in a tub and are pouring water over that baby and washing it down? Why are you doing that? Who told you to do that? Who gave you permission to do that? You, you, you would look back with your eyes wide open like, are you kidding me? Are you serious? Do, do you not know what you're talking about? Well, look at the Old Testament once. Never mind now Colossians 2, which clearly, without any dispute whatsoever, correlates circumcision and baptism. What circumcision does, namely incorporates us into Christ, notice that in the passage, is the exact same thing that baptism does. Only, the only difference that's brought out in Colossians 2 is that the administration of baptism, the administration of water, adds something. It's not only a sign and seal of being buried with Christ, being incorporated into Him such that we are buried, crucified, as Paul says even in Romans 6 with Him, but also then raised to newness of life. There's something in the blood of Jesus Christ that is refreshing. And the water brings that out. It was there in the Old Testament sign too, but it's made more clear in the New Testament. But look at the Old Testament. And ask yourself a single question. Did God wash children in the Old Testament or not? That is, as a father. As a father, was he a father of children? And did he treat children as his children? When he looked at his people and dealt with his people, did he deal with favorably? Did he speak promises? Did he touch with his blessing? Did he care for? Did he save just adults or adults and children? That's the question. Did God wash his children in the Old Testament or not? And the answer, without any dispute or controversy, is yes. Those who refuse to baptize their infants may dismiss all of that, but they do so at their peril, for it is God's word. We considered this morning that God speaks His commandments to them. And God speaks His commandments to them not only, but He singles out a single command using the words obeying and submitting to father and mother even for the broader application which is all in authority. He's speaking to children there. Which means that the preface of the Ten Commandments applies to those children. That God, God saved and led out of Egypt Children too. And we know that from the historical record. That there were children baptized in the Red Sea. There were children brought through that passage and have water sprinkled on them. There were children that passed through the Jordan River over into the land of Canaan, the kingdom of heaven. God saved them. God gave them loving and gracious attention. Read through the Old Testament and notice the attention God gives to children. See Him there speaking, ignoring as it were old Eli and talking to little Samuel. See God with young David as He's out shepherding His 
father's sheep. Many, many examples of God dealing with children as his saved people. And then there's this. This, this is unmistakable, and our fathers bring it out in our form. What is God's most favorite name for us besides saint? It's children. Children. Read to the Scriptures sometime and notice all the references to children. Not God simply dealing with Israel, but Israel as the children of Israel, the children of God. That phrase comes up again and again. And what, and what did the baptism form summarize our salvation as? What, what did it say that Christ did and accomplished? That God adopted us as His children. When we are to look at ourselves, even as adults, even as those who are ancient in human terms, we're a hundred years old. The Bible says you're but children. You're God's children. That's how He sees you. That's how He looks at you. That's how you address Him as children to a father. And we know, even if we are of advanced age, that our sins of children, we sin like children. We behave as children. Oh, so immature are we. In fact, what's amazing is when you look at the biblical record, when you look at God's prophecies, when you look at God's promises, when you look at the fact that even God Himself talks about the fact that in heaven, in the kingdom of heaven, in the glories of heaven, are not simply adults but children, you stand amazed that there's even a controversy. And you have to say, what's behind it? Does God wash children? Does God save children? Do children that die in infancy, are they taken up into heaven? And do they stand before the Lord? And we look at that, that's when the Reformed say, yes, there is a commandment. There is a commandment in Scripture to baptize or wash your children. And we find that reference in our baptism form when it refers to Mark 10. And the parallel passages that you will find also. It's recorded two other places. And that is where parents, parents of the covenant and the kingdom of God, took to Jesus little children, infants, in their arms. And the disciples tried to forbid that. No. No, go away. The Lord doesn't have time for children. He only has time for adults. He's too busy. He doesn't have time to do what you want Him to do. Well, what happened? The Lord became furious. There are a few times in Scripture where you read of the hot anger and wrath of Jesus. And this is one of them. The word used there in the original is one of the strongest words you can use for an emotion of anger, hot, fiery indignation at his disciples for pulling that stunt. Now, those parents did not bring their children there to Jesus to be baptized. 
Baptism had not been instituted yet. They were still in the Old Testament. But they brought them there. And they brought them there for the same reason that we bring our children here for the sacrament of baptism and why we're here to witness that. They brought them to Jesus as the Messiah because they believed He was the Christ. And they sought His blessing. They wanted Him symbolically to show that they were members incorporated into His kingdom and His covenant that He was their King and their Lord. And that's exactly what He did. After giving the command, suffer, that is allow, bring the children to Me. That, the word suffer or allow, is the word bring, is brought out when He says negatively, and forbid them not. Jesus is reflecting there that bringing the children is both a command, but it is one that parents carry out by faith, believingly, not out of custom or superstition. They come willingly, which is why we treat it that way too in the church. We teach and we preach that it's required. There will be no parents in the Reformed churches who say, I'm not baptizing my children. At the same time, we as parents don't bring them there simply because we are bludgeoned and whipped to do so. We come believing, believing the promises of God. Well, that's what Jesus did. And we see there the command. Bring your children to Jesus. Bring them there for the washing away of sins. For the application of the sign of washing that they too belong to the church and kingdom of Christ. And that's reflected in the Heidelberg Catechism here. It's reflected in our form. It's reflected in the language that the Reformed use time and time again, which is not that it's optional. Are infants also to be baptized? Not may they. Can we do so if we so wish? Is this an optional matter in the Reformed churches? And if it's options taken, is it okay? No. Are they? Answer, yes. Yes, they are. That's the language of must. That's the same exact language used in the form. They are to be brought. They must be brought. Believing that Jesus saves children too. That His blood was shed for them. And that's really the basis for the whole business. The basis is not whether it's commanded or not. Often is that not true in Scripture. Show me a basis. That's a command for the administration of the Lord's Supper to women. Won't find one. Sorry. Maybe we should deny the Lord's Supper to all women because there's no biblical command for it. No, the biblical command is there, we believe, in what Jesus did symbolically. We believe there's much other evidence that we could point to. When whole families were baptized, even servants, at the conversion of the head of the home, those families surely had children and young ones who were baptized. And if you ask, why is it not clearer? Why is there not commandment? We'd say, 
Well, for the same reason, there's no biblical warrant to administer the Lord's Supper to women. Why would there be such a thing? It's obvious. It's clear. This is what's been done from the beginning of time. God's dealings with children, circumcision of children, of course, baptism of children. But when you look at the real reason why, you have to look deeper. And the reason why, the basis is God's covenant. You could really even go further than that. We do when we talk about God's covenant, when we consider what God's covenant is. We're actually going all the way back to God Himself. Why is it that we did hear what we did this morning? And the answer is because of who God is and what God is. God is a Father who has a Son. And the question is, does he love that son? Does he care for that son? As a son, how does he deal with that son? Does God, as it were, speaking foolishly as a man, because we're talking about the eternally begotten son, say, no son, not until you grow up, not until you decide to love me first, not until you confess your faith? No. He was always his son, and as his son, he dealt with him as a son. And, and now when God wants to reveal that wonderful relationship in Christ, and don't forget Christ, as we read in Colossians 2, is the full manifestation of God, Father and Son and Spirit, all in one, which not coincidentally is why, Although our form calls on the minister to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you might be surprised to learn that there were baptisms formed or performed in the name of Christ. What would you think of that? What would you think of that if simply we said, in the name of Christ, I baptize you? Would you object and say, well, you're, you're, you're only then baptizing in the name of the Son? No. On the basis exactly of what Colossians 2 says, in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's who Christ is. Does it surprise you then that when Christ is sent into the world to manifest who and what God is, that He is a Christ who saves children? As children now. Not a God who kind of messes around with. Christ who kind of tussles the hair of children and basically is saying to them, someday when you grow up, I'll save you. It implied, of course, wink, wink, after you do what I expect you to do. No. No. The covenant. Go back to the Old Testament, the first revelation of the covenant, and all of its working out was with Abraham and his seed. The apostle makes clear that seed being singular refers to Christ. In other words, the covenant was made with Abraham and Christ. The proper way to look at it is that the covenant was made with Christ, and because Abraham was in Christ by faith, it was made with Abraham. But exactly because of that, then, that same promise to Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 7, goes on to talk about generations. God was making clear His covenant wasn't simply with Christ, only with Christ, limited to Christ, but it was a covenant made with everyone in Christ. Everyone incorporated into Him by faith. And that would be generations. Children. Children born, children unborn. Children baptized, not baptized. Children and more children. 
covenant is God's promise to be the God of children and adults, and that they would be His children not only, but He would be their God. Two parts, two sides to it. God's promise to love us and that we would love Him. And that promise was a promise that that would happen. Not if you love me, I will love you, or vice versa even. But this is my promise. You will love me, and I will love you. God's promise that He made was made to Christ and all in Christ. That means not necessarily every single physical child that we give birth to, or even that we raise. When we baptize, we don't do so on that basis. We don't baptize on the basis that God will indeed save every single one of our children. That's not it. We do so on the basis that God saves children. That God saves my children. My children whom He is pleased to incorporate into Christ. Even there, God, you see, shows His grace. That's one of the things we revel in at infant baptism. This amazing sign that reminds us that it all depends on God in Christ. Baptism, therefore, when we examine it just like circumcision, isn't a sign of what I will do or what I have done. Where infant baptism is denied, that's often what you will find. It's a sign, they say, of what I have done. I have accepted Jesus Christ. I have acknowledged Him. I have confessed my faith. And so, therefore, the sign... No, it's not a sign of what you've done. Is that the way washing works? What's going on when there's a washing? When a mother grabs her child and she washes, do we look at that as saying, well, look at the baby's doing. He's washing himself. No. The mother's washing. You are washed. And, and it's so obvious. Everybody should see it. It's the application of the blood of Christ, Christ's blood, Christ's cleansing agent by another, namely the Holy Spirit. It's not a sign of what I've done or what I will do. It's a sign of what God has done or what God will do. There's a reminder of that even in the form, isn't there? It's amazing that our creeds and our form speaks in two senses. On the one hand, you will find the form speaking about our children already being incorporated into Christ. Our fathers, when they do that, speak rightly. They are doing justice to the reality that we are not only incorporated into Christ in time, but that's rooted in God's choosing us to belong to Christ in eternity, election. It's also doing deference. It's a nod to the fact that God can and often does incorporate our children into Christ long before they're baptized. He can do that as he did with John the Baptist even in the womb. John the Baptist was incorporated into Christ in his mother's womb. No doubt about it. Otherwise he couldn't leap at his voice. So it will use past tense. Don't ever overlook that. Don't ever minimize that. It's there in the sign. But then you have other instances like in the prayer where we pray 
that God incorporate them into Christ, that God do certain things. And that's in recognition that it's still all of grace, that God does not feel obligated, nor is He obligated to give the reality to everyone that receives the sign. The sign is received by faith, and God grants faith according to His own sovereign purposes. And our only response to that is, yes, Lord. Sometimes it's very painful. There are parents that can testify of that. Baptized children that want nothing to do with Christ, that don't believe in Him and have rejected Him. But that is a reminder that our own understanding and belief that we are saved by the blood of Christ is a gift of God too. So what a wonderful sacrament that we have here. Now, move on to the calling. It is amazing also that in the Reformed faith, the attitude of baptism, the attitude toward baptism, and read the quote by Kelvin once that I put in the bulletin and you'll get the flavor of it real quickly. John Kelvin and the reformers all saw baptism as a tremendous motivation. In fact, take away that and you really have no motivation to do what's right with regard to your children. Our fathers are pointing out the vast difference there is between raising your children as those incorporated into the covenant by the grace of God and those who may be, perhaps, hopefully, if you do what you're supposed to do, or the children do what they're supposed to do. A whole different attitude. Now, the former attitude is often mocked at with the same mockery that people mock justification by faith alone. If you teach justification by faith alone without works, then what's going to happen is it's going to make men careless and profane. There's going to be no incentive, no motive to live a godly life. And our fathers say it's not true. Same thing holds true for baptism. Now, there indeed may be carelessness. But that's not a carelessness caused by baptism. That's not a carelessness caused by doctrine. That's a carelessness caused by sin and selfish, proud parents. The fact of the matter is, if a parent truly believes by faith in the promises of God, then they will be and they are moved with the greatest love of all for their children. A love that even conquers and overcomes their own selfish pride to simply live for themselves. When you understand the sacrament and you believe in the truth of the sacrament, and you look at your children and you say, it's not about me. It's not really even about them. But when I look at the children of the church, I look at my children in the church, then I must give thanks. I must love and serve this God who has done this wondrous thing. And you see, that's love for God. And then love for the neighbor follows, you see. What is the incentive for godly discipline? Godly discipline now. Not abusive children, godly discipline. In love for instruction. Not the attitude now they know everything or they know enough. They know who Jesus is. But rigorous instruction, endless, constant instruction of the children as children, the support and maintenance of Christian schools, what lies all behind that. And their fathers had never been ashamed to say baptism. 
baptism. We baptize our infants here. And it changes our outlook and our thinking. It changes how we live our lives. It, it changes how we govern our family. And you may, you may examine your family in that light. You, you have married people here, people with children, if not children, grandchildren, others who desire children. Children play prominent in the church for a reason. A reminder that you're therefore not excluded if you don't have children or you're not married. But when we look at our own families and the families in the church, ask yourself, why do you do what you do? Why do you have them? And why do you raise the ones that you are given the way that you do? Why do you talk to them the way that you do? Why do you buy them the things that you buy them? Why do you feed them? If the answer is not the covenant of God and the sacrament of washing, you are failing as a parent. You are failing as a mother and a father. Do I need to repeat that? If the answer is not God's gracious covenant of grace, then I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. Then those children are yours and yours alone. And you will use them, really abuse them, for your own selfish ends. Oh, you're, you're going to fool yourself into thinking that you love your children and you're, you're doing so much for them. Why, we, we bought a boat for our children and, and we have a cottage for our children and we spend all this money on our children and, and look, at all the, all, look at all the things that we're doing, but that's all selfish. That's not faith. That's not faith. And then if that happens, where the children then realize what selfishness is, realize that that's not real love and faith in Jesus Christ, and they walk away, don't be surprised. Don't wonder at that. The point of our fathers, what's being taught here in the catechism, the idea found in our form, is this really is the only ground for the most vigorous, unending, sweat-inducing, tear-inducing, spend-your-time-on-your-knees-in-prayer work that there is. Children are not hard work simply because they get dirty and they do foolish things, acting like children, and they require constant care to keep them out of danger. But that's even more true. That's just a picture of the spiritual realm. And that's the calling of baptism. The idea is very simple. These are my children. I have incorporated them into Christ. They're not your own. They too belong to their faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. How dare you think that you can simply raise them how the world raises their children. Or raise them according to your own whims and ways. How dare you think that you can simply satisfy their soul by providing some earthly trinkets. No, they're mine. I've laid my hands on them. I've blessed them. And now you treat them that way. You care for them that way. You love them that way. That's the sacrament of washing. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father which art in heaven, O Lord our God, we thank Thee for the covenant of grace and the great sign of that covenant. That children too, even in their earliest infancy, 
are incorporated into Jesus Christ and incorporated, therefore, into His covenant and His kingdom. We are thankful, O Lord, for that wonderful, wonderful, amazing expression of Thy mercy and grace, Thy sovereignty, Thy power. And we pray, O Lord, continue to save our children, to deal graciously with them, and to remember us in Thy covenant of grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.